But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to reconcile us to God through the cross by which he put to death our hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And then there's this one. The promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And then back to Romans, Paul says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And, of course, the one you see at every football game, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And Ephesians. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now, any of us who have been doing church for any amount of time, these are incredibly familiar, right? These verses, we've heard them from the time we're little. These are the ones that our Sunday school teachers got us to memorize in the very beginning. And we claim to believe them. But here's my question to you this morning. Do you really believe these verses? Do we really believe them? Do I really believe them? They're quite clear that there is nothing we can do to save ourselves. That God saves us by himself. That he saves us because he loves us. Even when we are, using the, the, the language and the imagery from our parable, in the far country, he still loves us. If what these verses, and many, many, many more like them say, is true about God, that is transforming. That is transforming. So here's the question that you can ask yourself. If you're not, if we are not, and I'm including myself in this, if we are not living transformed lives, or at least little bits of transformation day in and day out and are happening in our lives, yet grace is transforming, then we have to ask ourselves, do we believe what the Bible teaches? And a lot of people want to go back to the old way. I get it all the time from, from people that know the way we explore grace here at Cana. Nope, they want, they want, they just tell me what to do. Tell me how to live like Christ. Shh. Well, here's the problem. You, you can't. But Christ in you can. And that's grace. And that's receiving grace. And this is why here at Cana we are constantly talking about the gospel. If we're going to be transformed, we're not going to do it. That's the human way of being better. And I've tried that for 52 years, and it hasn't worked. And finally, I'm starting to hear the Holy Spirit in me say, why don't you just stop trying and receive me? And welcome grace into your life. Because grace is transformed. Okay? And in a moment, we're going to see just how transforming it is in the life of the prodigal. But I'm afraid... What has happened, we instead transform this good news to fit our most cherished idea that we're in control and determine what God does. Yet in so doing, we remain in the far country as much as ever. Now, we tend to do this, transform this truth in two ways, all right? The first way is pretty obvious, and I think most of us are trying to fight this. But this is the first way that this truth has been transformed in Christianity. Someone comes stumbling into church in desperate need of God. The elders get a hold of him and welcome him in, of course, because... They know Jesus loves the sinner. Then they get them all cleaned up, 
with some version of a sinner's prayer, with some confession of sins, with some form of invitation to Jesus to take up residence in his heart. They get a course in Christianity 101. Then they get an introductory course in church doctrines. And that's basically what Great Temple calls the Christian car wash. We're excellent at giving people the Christian car wash. Right? And then, but the problem is, the message that is being received and is actually being spoken loud and clear is this. As long as he continues to act and dress and speak and look and believe like we do, he must be saved. Because all of this is what causes God to really love us. But if he doesn't continue to act and dress and speak and look and believe like we knew, he must not be saved. For if God loves us for being this way, God must hate everyone else who's not this way. See how simple that is? And how, we're all guilty of it. And then church becomes something that's not authentic. We have communities where hopefully Cain is breaking this down, where you have, to, you have to look a certain way and act a certain way and don't ever tell anybody you doubt. Because the second you tell a Christian you doubt, well, you've got to go back in the Christian car wash. <laughs> There's no doubting in Christianity. Why do we do that to people? Why do we do it to ourselves? I have a hint for you. God loves us dirty. That's the whole point of the Bible. We're dirty. We're the ones who don't like ourselves dirty, and we don't like other people dirty. God does. This is why religious leaders hated Jesus. Because Jesus said he was God and loved dirty people. Okay. But here's the problem with thinking that God loves us for being a certain way. It's not true. It's not what the Bible says. Being a certain way can be good for us. Certainly can be very good for us. And I won't apologize for that. You know, you, you want to sleep with your neighbor's wife? Trust me, it's not going to be good for you. Oh, it might feel good for a little bit, and then it's going to all go to hell. And you're going to destroy yourself and all these other relationships at the same time. So I don't recommend doing that. And God has no problem saying that's bad. But that is entirely different than God saying, and therefore I don't love you. God loves us because he does. He forgives us because he loves us. He died because he loves us. He reconciles us to himself because he wants to. He wants to because he loves us. He loves us because he does, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We don't factor into this equation at any level except to being the recipients of his amazing love. That's it. And how offensive is that? We hate that as human beings. Because we've learned our whole life if we don't act a certain way, we're not going to be loved. And we still do it to each other all the time. Think your closest relationships. They don't act a certain way, you don't love them anymore. And so we assume that's God. We have put ourselves on the throne. This is this great act of self-worship. All right, here's the second way we have transformed this gospel instead of letting it transform us. This is much more subtle, and here's where we all get offended. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is gifts of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You ready? And I'm sorry, because a lot of us here are, are, have a broad evangelical base to our Christianity. 
we have turned this lovely little word faith into a work. Now, my suspicion is this was not a conscious effort. This is simply where the subtlety of human pride is constantly taking God off the throne and putting ourselves in his place because we love to worship ourselves. So what we've done is instead of faith, confession, repentance, all being a response to God's love, his love that is evidenced in his work of redemption, the cross, we have somehow come to understand faith and teach it as a mechanism that persuades God to love us, forgive us, to redeem us. I've had people say to me, well, God doesn't hear your prayers until you say a sinner's prayer, right? I don't, I, don't even, I, like, I don't even know how to respond to that. I understand where it's coming from. I, used to, I was taught that. I believe that. But here's the thing. If we can do anything, anything at all, to cause God to love us, then I don't think that's the God revealed by Jesus Christ. And in fact, if we have to appease God, and I want you to think about this because I know we all appease God. We all practice appeasement. I want you to think about this. If we have to appease God, then my suggestion is we're all out of luck. Do you know how many different ways humanity thinks you have to appease God? Just go to Christian churches. Every church has their own way of appeasing God. So if it's the case, how would we know what's really the best way to appease God? And that's when people will turn to that literalist, minimalist reading of the Bible and say, well, it's right here. It's all very clear. Just do this, 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 and that's how you appease God. But is that what our Bible is for? <laughs> to teach us how to appease God? And if it's that clear and simple, why are there thousands of branches in Christianity all telling you a different way to appease God? So if it's about appeasement, I'm going to stick with Solomon and I'm going to stick to Solomon's creed instead of Jesus' creed. Solomon's creed is eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we're going to die. Well, if we have to appease God, that's the only creed there is. But that's bad news. Jesus has great news. We do not need to appease God and he states it as clearly as possible in this parable. All right, sorry for that long introduction, but now we can look at this, this incredible, incredible thing. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now, if you were here two weeks ago, I mentioned that these words would show up again in this story in a new context, in a new meaning, and here they are, okay? When the son planned on saying these things, and we looked at this in depth, when the son planned on saying these things while he was still in the far country, they were words meant to manipulate, to appease, to transact with his father. All he was planning when he was in the far country was to get the father to receive him back and allow him to work off his debts. We looked at that. I don't want to go back into it, but that's why he says, make me like one of your hired servants. And it's not, we looked at this, remember, servants is not the word. It is skilled craftsmen. So this was a plan to eat. 
and to earn off his debts, work off his debts, and be welcomed back someday. This was not anything to do with pure confession or repentance or anything. But now, they're being said with different meaning, with a whole new understanding. Now, they are pure repentance, pure confession, pure faith, because now they are response to his father's unconditional love. They are not an attempt to bargain for the father's unconditional love. Right? You see, here's the thing. The father did not know what the son would say when he was running to find him. This is, such, this, this is the apex of this parable. But still, the father demonstrated costly love before the son had a chance to say anything. Before the son had a chance to say anything. The father took on shame and humiliation when we studied what running meant back then. Shame and humiliation to reach the son before the son said anything. Think about this. The father offered forgiveness and reconciliation. That's what the kissing meant. We studied that last week. The father offered forgiveness and reconciliation before the son uttered one word of confession. Think about this. And this profound demonstration of his unconditional and sacrificial love changed everything for the son. Because grace transforms. Only grace. Only grace. So now, in this new context, these words, Father, I have sinned against you, I am no, against heaven and you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. These are evidence of a son who at last knows there is nothing he can do to bring reconciliation. He sees finally his hopelessness, his helplessness, his true condition, and throws himself fully on the Father's now clearly evident love and mercy. And that's why I ask the question, do we believe these verses? Do we throw ourselves on God's love and mercy because we know he loves us or because we think we're good enough for him to love us? I'm going to let Bailey explain this because he does it so brilliantly. Here's Bailey's words on understanding the apex of this parable. Stunned beyond belief, the prodigal changes his mind and does not finish his speech. His proposed offer to work as a servant now seems blasphemous. In a flash of awareness, he now knows there is nothing he can do to make up for what he has done. The offer to become a craftsman is deliberately set aside. He does not presume to offer any solution to their estrangement. Rather, overwhelmed, he can only put himself completely at the mercy of his father and say, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. His surrender to his father's will is complete. At the beginning of the story, he insisted on unhampered control of his own life. Now he leaves his destiny entirely in his father's hands. He is overwhelmed by this unexpected outpouring of costly love. Words originally composed to manipulate are transformed into a speech of genuine how beautiful is that? Is that our relationship with God? I got to tell you, it, it, it's, it, it, that's not how my relationship with God started at any level. And I'm still trying to get there at 52. My relationship with God started because I was such a dirty, horrible, rotten sinner. I had to say the sinner's prayer or God was never going to love me and never going to forgive me. 
and I was six years old on my back steps. It was autumn. My mother was at work because she was a nurse. It was a Saturday afternoon and my father was home. And I remember it like it was yesterday. And then for the rest of my early Christian journey, that was just reinforced that God didn't really love me unless I was doing something right. Even if it was just having faith, it had to be done right. And then it kept getting reinforced because this table in the, the Christianity I was brought up in was only reserved for those who were good. Many days in my teen years, I wasn't allowed to have communion because I would have trouble parking the car the night before, and so my father just guessed I had been sitting when I was out, and so on Sunday morning, and he was right, but on Sunday morning, I wasn't allowed to have communion because I wasn't good enough. I was in the far country, and God doesn't love people in the far country. And now I am trying to learn to just come to my father who loves me and say, have mercy on me because you are a merciful God. In fact, here's my new prayer. When I, 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 I run, and whenever I go out for a run, the first thing, I, as soon as I stop, I'm not even at the end of my driveway. Father, this might kill me today, and if it does, two things. Take me home, not because of anything I've done, but because you are a God who loves, and then take care of my family. <laughs> and then I get through my run, I'm like, yes, I'm okay. But that's my prayer. Just welcome me because you welcome is so different. In years past, there was a... Because I... Now, interestingly, and some of you might be questioning what I just said because we're offended and that's fine. And also probably because you've been taught this. This verse, traditional Western teaching on this verse that we're looking at this morning, suggests the father interrupted the son's speech and that is why he was never able to offer being a servant as he planned to do in the far country. And they point, they use the parable, and I've used the parable in the past to point to the fact that, well, see, the son had this whole change of heart in the far country and came home. And that's why he was welcomed home. No. He didn't have a plan to come home. He had a plan to eat and to transact with the father, not to be in relationship with the father. See, we offer that explanation of what's going on because our idea that repentance, confession, faith is a mechanism that causes God to do something for us. But it's not. It's a response to what he's already done. So here's my backup for why I'm teaching the parable this way. We don't do the whole reading, but this parable is actually the third chapter of a parable. It's the parable of lost things. It starts with the sheep and the coin and then the lost sons. We don't read those first two chapters because it just would make a long reading, although that's maybe going to be part of this. We're, we might do like an inception thing. Because <laughs> like we're one level down right now from Galatians. Maybe we're going to go to those. We're going to go, we're going to be in the parable and we're going to go to those parables. We're going to be like two levels down before we ever get back. I might do that on those two parables. But my point being, sorry, let me get back there. I just thinking that would be really cool. My point here is this. Jesus made very clear the coin and the sheep did nothing to be found. Nothing. The coin and the sheep were just found. They did nothing to be found. Nothing. 
And he was building up to this part of the parable where he brings the full weight to bear of his idea of repentance, confession, and faith. It is response, the only proper response to God's amazing love. And like I said, don't make the mistake of thinking that the son came home so that he, so that is why the father forgave him. We know he was still in the far country, he just wanted to eat. And second, and second, the story itself will not allow that interpretation. Remember, context is vital to understanding scripture. What do we know about what happened to the son right here later on? We're going to look at this. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The son was found. He did not come home. We get found by God and loved by God. We don't go home and make God love us. Two revered Middle Eastern biblical scholars from antiquity. So, you know, they were there long before modern Christianity and after the Reformation and all that. They were there a long time ago, and they were from this culture. This is how they've always understood it. The first one is Ibn el-Tayyib. He did not complete what he was planning to say because he saw from the running of his father to him and the grace-filled way his father met him and embraced him that there was no longer any place for this request to be a craftsman. For if after such acts he had made such requests, it would have appeared that he doubted the genuineness of his father's offered forgiveness. How many times maybe we doubt God's genuineness and his love and forgiveness for us? How many times are you in a dark place and you can't pray because you're afraid to pray? You're doubting God's love for you. If you can't pray in the midst of your worst sin, then maybe you shouldn't pray ever. If we should ever be talking to God, it's in the midst of our worst sin. That's the kind of father we have. I learned that, interestingly enough, from my own dad, who was filled with contradictions. Some Sundays he wouldn't let me break bread, but then other days I could tell him anything and he just loved me. He was caught in his own theology of appeasement, in his own religious world. That's why he wouldn't let me break bread. Mm-hmm. But when he was outside of that influence, he was God in the flesh for me. In Ibn al-Salibi, why did he not say to his father, fashion out of me one of your paid craftsmen, when he had planned to say it? The answer is that his father's love outstripped him, and forgiveness was ever flowing. Death is real. And because we know deep inside that Jesus was telling the truth when he said, there is a death beyond the physical, it makes sense that we live in fear of death. But Jesus Christ promises salvation from that fear, from that death. His death somehow erases that death. I don't get it. We should probably not try to figure out how or what that's about. It just gets confusing. One of the things Dave Bronson and I always talk about together is just resurrection. It's our, it's our, it's our final hope. It's, it's our singular hope. There is no other hope, right? Resurrection. Why, why should we figure it out? Let's just hope in it. God died for us, and he loves us, and his death somehow erases that final death. Understanding how is not important, but by responding to it, 
trusting that yes, God does love us, that yes, he did everything necessary to redeem us, that yes, we can do nothing to redeem ourselves, that is what's important. That is what's important. The son saw a costly love, the figurative death of his father, that he might live, and he responded to it in faith, accepting what had already been done. We have seen more costly love, the literal death of God for us. So here is the question, what is our response? Are we offended and scandalized and so continue on with our appeasement theology? Or worse, do we hate appeasement theology so much we abandon the idea of God altogether? And if that's you, I'm sorry. That man's appeasement theology has so made God so questionable and dark that you're abandoning it altogether? Or do we completely surrender our imaginings of control? And that's the best part of having to surrender control. We're not in control. We're not surrendering anything substantial. We're just surrendering the imaginary illusion of control that we all love to have. We don't have any control. Ask Rich. There is no control. So God says, hey, why don't you surrender that burden you carry around that is so imaginary? Lay down your life and let this God of love raise it back up simply because he wants to. We are forgiven for one reason only. Because Jesus died for our sins and rose for our justification. Forgiveness surrounds us beats upon us all our lives. We confess because we made ourselves forgivable or even we, sorry. We confess to wake ourselves up to what we already have. We are not forgiven, therefore, because we made ourselves forgivable or even because we had faith. Faith is not a transaction, not a negotiation in order to secure forgiveness. We are forgiven solely because there is a forgiver. Nothing new is ever done to achieve anything. It was all done once and for all by the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, by the one God in the person of the word incarnate in Jesus. We may be unable, as the prodigal son was, to believe until we finally see it. But the God who does it, like the father who forgave the prodigal, never once had anything else in mind. Thanks be to God.